You're listening to Riverview Church Conversations, a podcast for the spiritually curious. Well, welcome everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Riverview Conversations podcast. My name is Reese, and across from me, Hello. Is Ryan Gagel. Merry Christmas, Reese. And to you. Happy holidays and to all a good day. Look, we are rapidly approaching Christmas and um, we're excited for today's Conversations podcast because this is the final podcast we're going to have for this year uh, on our Conversations podcast at least. And we thought we'd get a little bit festive, Reese. Mm. So as always, let's start off with a, just a fun icebreaker just to get going. Reese. I hope it's Christmas related. You know me. You know me. <laughs> okay, if you're thinking of a Christmas dinner, Reese, you know, close your eyes and think of a Christmas dinner. What is the most important thing on the table? Good question. Um, non-alcoholic sparkling grape juice, like apple tizer vibe, something like that. Yeah, yeah, that is the one. As a kid, I was like, I could just spend all day drinking that mm. and. Nothing else. I don't want any food. I just mm. want the sugary mm. taste oh, yeah. of sparkling grape juice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we all have weird uh, Christmas traditions, don't yes. we? I was thinking, for me, it would just have to be really crispy roast potatoes. Mm. Yeah, pretty good. If they're not on the table, it's not Christmas. Yeah. It's just some weird yeah. celebration. Um, and the turkey. See, I'm not opposed to turkey. Like, I don't mind a bit of turkey, mm. like a bit of a cold cut kind of sandwich. But the turkey, like the... The cooked, mm. the roast turkey, it's just a big old tough gamey bird. I'm not... <laughs> I'm, I He's not a fan, people. Well, you know, like we've just done Thanksgiving and it's like, oh, turkey, it's hard to find one and it's hard to cook it and then sometimes it's hard to eat it. Why bother? Well, you know, don't be the Grinch this Christmas, <laughs> right? Uh, as we said, we thought we'd have a fun uh, festive conversation. And um, throughout this year, we've been doing a couple of conversations, which we've simply titled, How Did We Get Here? And the goal of which has really been for us to identify some of the traditions or the, the thoughts that we have and how we arrived to have those. And we thought in the lead up to Christmas, why not do a festive version and what we thought we'd do is we'd take some time to do some research on a couple of different Christmas traditions and how we arrive to have the traditions that we have. Now, I'll say from the outset, Reese, don't know about you, but I do not have a degree in Christmasology. And uh, so we have been researching, <laughs> but we are not at fault for any uh, uh, misinformation. But we, we have the mics at the moment, so you will listen to what we have to say. That's right. Shall we begin? <laughs> Why not? Let's do it. Well, we are going to begin. Uh, Reese, you're going to be sharing something with me. Now, just to give you an idea how this is working, uh, Reese and I had some homework. We went away separately to do some research on some different Christmas traditions. And so we don't know what the other is going to be talking about. So we're going to be learning a lot today. Now, Reese, you're going to kick us off talking about um, yes. dating and name of Christmas. Yes. So, Christmas. Mm. Do you know what Christmas means, Ryan? Christ Mass. Correct. Ding, 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 ding. Now, the name Christmas mm. I read this morning yep. on the internet that is actually the shortened form of Christ's 
Mass. And that was first recorded in the year 1038. Wow, okay. Now, to me, that qualifies as olden days. Mm. Very olden <laughs> yes, days. that does. <laughs> um, and I think in a, in a few different, depending on what country you're in or what kind of tradition you're a part of, that potentially was sometimes called Christian's Mass. Mm. Uh, yeah, and has a few different varietals depending on your language or dialect of choice. Hmm. Now, along with Christmas, obviously we see quite frequently the uh, the further abbreviation Xmas. Yeah, which I think we've all kind of known that that can be a bit fraught, depending on. Yeah, people don't like Xmas, no, especially not people in the Christmas tradition. They think it's a bit of a um, removing Christ from. Oh, Christmas. you can't do that, you know. But <laughs> did you know that Xmas is uh, an abbreviation of Christmas, often found in print. And it's based on the letter Chi, I believe, which is mm. X, uh, the first letter of the Greek word Christos. So there we go. Xmas, the Christ is in Xmas. Mm. It's it's just right there. In fact, so, maybe even more traditional. Should we wow. just let's claim it? Let's yeah, just yeah, yeah. let's yeah. reclaim it for Christ. So tell me about. I hope you know this. Oh, <laughs> I'm testing you. <laughs> tell me about how we ended up with Christmas, where we have it. In oh, our the calendar. date. Yeah, the yeah. dating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. Well, because I, I, I was, I was thinking this morning. Um, so, there's some shepherds involved in the Christmas story, right? Mm. But we have Christmas in winter, and I don't think the shepherds would be herding their flocks in the middle of winter, right? Mm. So, you know, maybe they'd choose a different time. Maybe spring. Maybe pre-winter. I don't know. <laughs> so, how do we end up with Christmas in December the 25th, right? Because mm. it's um, not like when we read the gospel accounts, it says on the 25th of December, in little the baby, of, in the middle of winter in the northern region, yeah, with a lovely end. Christmas tree sparkling. No, no. no. Um, and then you, you, you probably, if you've been around a little while, know that um, winter solstice is kind of like a festival celebration mm. that many different kind of people groups have celebrated over, over. Um, you know, millennia probably. Mm. Um, and I think the notion behind celebrating winter solstice was that the worst of winter is behind you mm. and you can look forward to longer days and extended yeah. hours of sunlight. So it's kind of like a festival kind of in um, in Norse traditions and Germanic kind of places. Um, and I know that in Scandinavia, the Norse people celebrated Yule from December the 21st, which is winter solstice, through to January, which is in recognition of the return of the sun and... Oh, Fathers and sons, of the sun. yeah, would bring oh. home large logs, the Yule log, which they would then set on fire. Hey, um, Yule is in a Christmas carol. I can't yeah. picture which Yuletide. Yule, yeah, yes. okay. And so apparently, the story goes: the the people would feast until the log burned out, which could take as much as twelve days. Wow! So it's it's a bit of a vibe, bit of a festival. And uh, the Norse people believed that each spark from the fire represented a new pig or calf that would be born during the coming year. The 12 days of Christmas? Yeah, well, potential. Potential. It's hard to say. Yeah, so obviously like the kind of the time of the winter solstice and our current current date of Christmas kind of coincide. Mm. And I think that the church in the early 4th century kind of hitched the two together and decided that this would be a good good time. It's kind of a festival that's already happening and let's kind of Mm. hitch our Christmas cart to that festival. How convenient. There you go. Yeah. So... The 25th of December isn't necessarily Jesus' birthday, but it's when we celebrate. No, and and uh, I think some people say that Jesus is probably more likely to, to be born in spring given kind of the, the tales of people coming and mm, mm. Um, you know the animals and the movement of various people during that time. A little bit like the Queen has many birthdays. Yeah, potentially, yeah. <laughs> now, here's a fun fact for you. Yeah. Did you know, this is not, this is, this is for free, this fact. After the American Revolution... English 
customs fell out of favor in the United States, hmm. including Christmas. And Christmas was not celebrated for a good number of years oh, in America, wow. and it was not declared a federal holiday until June the 26th in 1870. Wow, that's so, quite... Yeah. So the Americans had like a... I think assume that it's like... Yeah, yeah wow. the Americans had a Christmas break, a literal break from Christmas for a while. How about that? There you go. Yeah. That's, a, that's all I've got in my notes for... <laughs> I'm sure there's more there, but that's... Uh, yeah, do some, um, do some research for us, people. If you find yeah. some cool things, send it through. Yeah. So what have you got for me, Ryan? Well, Reese, um, I thought I would let you know a little bit about Santa Claus. And it's interesting, actually, already, as you've what shared some of that, there's, there's obviously overlaps that I'm already noticing in, in what I've researched. So what I want you to do, Reese, is just, just close your eyes and imagine Santa Claus. Describe him for me. What's he, what's Come he look Santa like? Claus here. Come Santa Claus right down Santa Claus Lane. Uh, white beard. Yep. Red and white clothing. Big black belt buckle. Kind mm. of a portly dude. Mm. Carrying a rosy cheeks. sack full of goodies. Uh, yeah, very rosy cheeks. Yeah. Um, he seems to get around a fair bit for the, the yeah, get through chimney. Yeah, he seems to be able to like bend time, doesn't he? Yeah. Mm. Very magical, magical powers. No one knows how he does it. That's right. Now, now I have no doubts that for most of us, when we picture Santa Claus, um, a similar kind of caricature comes to mm. mind. And what I was interested to look at is, is how do we arrive with that? So that's what we picture Santa Claus as. But where, where does this tradition come from? And how did it arrive to be kind of where it is? And mm. I thought I'd tell you a little bit of a story to get there. So our story begins in the third century Reese, with oh, the wow. real life figure of Saint Nicholas, and you probably heard the name Saint. Good Nicholas. old Saint Nick. Saint Nick, that's right. Now Saint Nicholas actually lived in and around modern day Turkey, so his choice of outfit probably wasn't great for um, <laughs> where he was living. But he was admired. <laughs> the Turks. That's right. He was admired for his piety and kindness, and he became the subject of many legends. Now it actually begins to get difficult to tell what is history and what's mm. legend. Uh, but it's said that St. Nicholas traveled the countryside um, supporting the poor and the sick. And, and one of the best-known stories about St. Nick, I found this quite fascinating, and I showed you a little picture mm. of it earlier. Uh, one of the f- best-known stories about St. Nick is about a time that he saved three poor sisters from being sold into slavery or prostitution. So it's said that the father mm. of these girls couldn't afford a dowry for the girls to get married. And it is said that St. Nicholas anonymously on three separate occasions dropped bags of coins through the oh, window wow. of this these girls' house. And that money would be enough for each of them then to get married. And so from the very earliest tradition, St. Nicholas was kind of connected with uh, generosity and giving and, and protection and almost like some awareness of our situation. He sees you. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, and his popularity spread and, and eventually he became known as a protector of children and of sailors. I, now, I, I couldn't quite bridge the gap as to mm. where the sailors came in, but we'll keep moving with our story. Now, this is all well and good, um, but when did he become connected with Christmas? Mm. I know that's exactly what you were thinking, Ray. So thank yeah, you for yeah, that. I'm, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, as with um, many saints of that time, feasts and festivals would be celebrated on the anniversary of their death. And, and St. Nicholas' death was celebrated on <gasps> December 6th. Oh, I thought you were going to say December the 25th. No, December 6th. And this celebration was traditionally considered like a lucky day to make large purchases, to get married, which is kind of un- mm. unconnected, or to give things away. Hmm. 
Um, now we jump forward about 1300 years in the story. <laughs> so there's a, there's a big gap. And St. Nicholas is among the most popular saint in all of Europe. So when you think of saints, he's mm. one of the ones that first comes to mind. Uh, let's be honest, who doesn't love uh, you know, a guy who, a festival of generosity and treat yourself kind of behavior? Mm, absolutely. Um, now, even after the Protestant Reformation, uh, which is in the 1600s, and the Protestants' desire to leave behind the saints of old, St. Nicholas maintains a positive reputation, especially this is where things get interesting, among Protestants in Holland. Oh, so the, the, Dutch. The, the Dutch, yeah. Now, we don't have time to go into it, but St. Nicholas and his merry men uh, were also often used to uh, leverage good behavior of children. Uh, <laughs> so there's stories about figures like um, Krampus and Belschnickel and others and other cultured legends that would reward children for their good behavior and punish them for bad behavior. So, yeah, what... Mm. Wasn't one of the things if if you got presents if you were a good child, yes. but if you were a bad child, you would get taken away That's... by the naughty little elves back to Spain. Go to Spain, yeah, yeah. As a punishment, I'm like, yeah. man, Spain. That sounds like a good time. So I Why feel like all of this began to merge in, right? And it, it, um, you know, for parents, they would leverage the story mm. of uh, Saint Nicholas and and all of that kind of stuff um, to actually mean their children would be. Hey, but it's still not necessarily all that connected with Christmas yet. Yeah, right. Uh, now we jump forward again a little bit of, in our story to St. Nicholas making inroads into American popular culture. And this is where things begin to um, solidify the picture mm. that we all know and love. So as I mentioned, St. Nicholas had a really positive reputation among the Dutch. And if you know your American history, you would know that before New York was New York, it was New Amsterdam. And it was largely established by Dutch communities. And so what is in now New York, large Dutch communities would gather together and celebrate celebrate St. Nicholas Day on the 6th of December to honor the anniversary of his death. And that would be a time of gift giving and all of these kind mm. of things. Now, what did the Dutch call St. Nicholas? They called him Sinterklaas. Yes. Sinterklaas, which is the shortened version of St. Nicholas. Oh. Claus. And so in the US, Sinterklaas became this familiar figure and in the early 19th century, the Christmas holiday was rejuvenated and included, you know, merry celebrations and, and gift giving. And during this period, the much celebrated Sinterklaas began to merge together with the Christmas tradition. So it seems as though that kind of amalgamation occurred through shopping malls. So Sinterklaas was used as a figure to encourage people, particularly the Dutch in that time, to buy gifts for upcoming mm. Christmas celebration. So here's this saint. He did this. And you can be like him this Christmas because that's kind of the period in which people would start buying mm. gifts to give. And so stores began to advertise Christmas shopping with Santa Claus, or as yeah. we know him uh, more commonly, from the, uh, the 1820s. And, you know, life-size Santa models became an attraction well, as well yeah. as the live Santa Claus. Well, that's my, que my, my question from there is so he's – you suddenly have live Santa Clauses and stuff mm. like that, and presumably there's advertising and stuff involved mm. in that. Mm. It, it, around this time, is Santa Claus wearing red and white, or is he just some some no. jolly dude wearing nondescript clothing? Yeah. So, so originally, this Santa Claus figure was wearing robes and um, pretty non-colorful, so to speak. You know, pretty boring kind of clothing, and, and and the rest of the story is a weird mix of art, of advertising, and of imagination. So. Where this starts cementing itself in the picture that we have is in, in 1822, Clement Moore, who was a minister, 
he wrote a long Christmas poem for his uh, daughters titled An Account of a Visit from St. Nicholas. Now, that name didn't go so down so mm. well because it's a bit boring. Yeah. So it became popularly known, popularly known as Twas the Night Before Christmas. Oh. Now, Moore said he was initially hesitant about publishing this poem due to the frivolous nature and its imaginative imagery around the Santa Claus figure. So in, in this poem, obviously, we begin to hear of sleighs and reindeers and all of this like imaginative stuff that really has um, no historical connection to the figure St. Nicholas. But because of this, imagination and the legend grew and grew. And this changed um, and became more streamlined then, and this is where things get quite interesting, in 1863 when an artist named Thomas Nass began creating artwork of Santa Claus. And his artwork was published in magazines of, uh, and, and articles of Santa bringing gifts to troops fighting in the American Civil War. And so that Santa um, combined Clement's description of St. Nicholas from the poem and began to kind of, um, you know, portray Santa as this, as you mentioned, jolly old man with with red pants and a cap. Now, this is where art has an effect, but then we turn to advertising. And I know you know a little bit about this part of the story. Um, at the beginning of the 1930s, the growing Coca-Cola company. Oh, my favorite company. Yes, you do like a bit of Coca-Cola. I do like a bit of full strength. That's right. So the growing Coca-Cola company was looking for ways to increase their product sales during winter, which obviously was a slow time for the cold drink market. And so they turned to this talented illustrator, um, Sundblom, I think is his name, who created a series of memorable drawings largely inspired by this poem. Again, fairly disconnected from the traditions of St. Nicholas himself mm. in the third century. And that then began to um, create this figure who's larger than life in, in red and white, perfect for Coca-Cola. Mm. Um, and you know, you know the picture you're thinking yeah. of. So it's quite interesting that Santa Claus, from almost humble origins of of generosity and of kindness and of protection, moved to a larger than life imagination of chimneys and sleighs. And I mean, really, as I was reflecting and, and researching this, you begin to see that this is really a story of cultural adap adaptation, yeah. um, of evolution, and of tradition of old, but. Really, the the centerpiece of the the Santa Claus story is actually a really kind of special one, but I found that story very very fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting that the the the, the kernel of the, you know the the you go all the way back to the original story of mm. Saint Nick, you know, the dropping of the uh, mm. the bag of coins. Mm. You know, I suppose we've taken that into Santa comes down the chimney and drops the presents down or whatever or places them. Exactly. That's really interesting. Yeah, and so there's lots of strong connections between a lot of mm. our, our the things that we hold to do with Santa Claus. Yeah. But I, I was quite surprised about the, the almost the origins being mm. one of almost Christ-like behavior, yeah. like generosity and kindness. I didn't realize just how much uh, the cultural, the modern take on Christmas is relates back to that poem. Was no. the night before Christmas? You know, if you read through it, and it's kind of you know, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse, and it conjures up images of you know children kind of sleeping and snow mm. outside and presents and a fire and all sorts of stuff. You know, yeah, you think of um, that's kind of that's almost where the the magical element comes in. You yes, know? yeah, you think of almost all the Christmas movies yeah, yeah, that totally. we would know now. Um, so much of them have been inspired by that poem, and mm. prior to that poem, 
the picture that we have of of Santa Claus or Santa Claus or Saint Nick is is very different to after mm. that poem, and it it's just interesting that that's how kind of tradition and legend seems to mm. to work. It's inspired by art, advertising, imagination, and um, our ability to almost adapt and take with us traditions of old and and bring them into something mm. new and different. Yeah, the Christmas movie thing is obviously a huge. Mm. Like that's in, in the modern days, it's really kind of solidified things even further because, mm. you know, we all sit around and talk about or we sit around and watch Christmas movies and mm. talk about our favorite ones and ones we like, don't like, yeah. traditions that we have. You know, like we have in our family, we're starting to build a little tradition of watching the same things mm. kind of every year. And it's, I feel like that kind of adds to the magic. You mm. know? I wonder what, what Christmas would be like if we didn't, it, almost as if that poem didn't, yeah, yeah. whether or not the the magic kind of was actually in it's it's not in the cultural representations mm. but the magic is actually in mm. generosity and receiving and yeah all yeah that. I'm, I'm not well sure it's that. interesting even um the the whole gift giving element mm. attached to christmas obviously there is some biblical precedent for it but it wasn't necessarily in this in this way and so it's almost this weird combination of these two celebrations that get combined mm. to become something that actually is positive and special um, mm. of course advertisers like like they do would then leverage that yeah. for for sales and for marketing and to to drive a point further to you know um, increase profitability but um, yeah it's quite interesting that the humble origins of Saint Nick are, mm. are one of it's quite positive yes the other thing that I think of when I think of Santa Claus is half the time I don't picture actually Santa Claus but I picture a Santa bear that you get from a department <laughs> store yeah I remember being five or six and I was like I don't want anything for Christmas but a Santa bear which is a little white bear with a Hat on top, and mm. I got it. Mm. I was like, what am I going to do with Santa Bear? I want a skateboard. <laughs> now, one of the interesting things along with that is almost the, this origin of Chris Kringle, which oh, apparently yeah. is actually to do with, um, I can't remember what the actual word is, but it's like Christ child. And oh, it's yeah. the translation of that. Because I think in some traditions, Chris Kringle goes along almost like an angel-like figure mm. with Santa Claus. Mm. And Chris Kringle is essentially, um, you know, of Christian origins. It's talking about Jesus. Jesus or the presence mm. of Jesus going with this figure. But it's quite interesting just yeah. the, the amount of overlap in terms of um, religious imagery but mm. also um, secular kind of mm. thought and imagination. This has just led us to arrive at uh, plump old Santa Claus. Yeah, we never had Kris Kringle in New Zealand. No, I, I mean, not part of our tradition either. I remember like when I first came to Australia and I was like, Kris Kringle, there was a few people talking about it and kind mm. of and I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. But we have a secret Santa. Mm. I Secret can, Santa, I can, yeah, yeah. I can get along with Secret Santa. Well, Secret Santa maybe is the most traditional kind of Santa. Oh, yeah, because you don't know who's going to drop the coins to pay the dowry. Wow, there it is. Or you don't know who's going to get the $10 gift from the uh, the reject shop for you. The funny, <laughs> you know, not quite as good the, as the little gag price. <laughs> you know? uh, anyway, that's Santa Claus. <laughs> yeah, cool, man. Thanks for that. That's, that's illuminating. So I've got a topic for you. Bring it on. Uh, I'd like to talk about the nativity scene. So when you so when you think of uh, nativity, what do you picture in your mind's eye, in your mind palace? Ah, uh, look, there's got to be some shepherds. Mm-hmm. Are we talking about the nativity kind of play that you would? Well, the scene, the this is just scene. general nativity kind of, you know. Yeah, there's some hay. Oh yeah. There's a baby in a manger. There's a quite a distressed mother 
with a confused looking father. <laughs> uh, there's some animals around. Um, due to popular um, imagery, there's some lobsters. <laughs> yeah, it, it, in the famous nativity play in the movie Love Actually, there's I think there's two lobsters. Yeah. We've been given our parts in the nativity play. <gasps> and I'm the lobster. The lobster? Yeah. In the nativity play? Yeah, first lobster. There was more than one lobster present at the birth of Jesus. Duh. Um, yeah, lots of sheep. There's some wise men. There's some gifts. There's some yep. stars. You've got some magi. I mean, you might have some. There's a drummer boy just sitting in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough, do you know that in some, uh, I think it's in uh, Spain, sometimes mm. they have a little uh, joke man that appears in uh, in nativity scenes. It's actually a man kind of in the uh, sitting in a position as if he is going to the toilet. Like that's he's a tradition. A, he's a little joke character in the nativity scene, and sometimes it gets banned. But it's like <laughs> if you have it in a public place, they might they might kind of take exception to it. But many nativity scenes that you can buy have that little really little dude. Really? Yeah. Uh, awesome. But I'm, I'm jumping ahead. <laughs> um, uh, here, uh, see if you can guess kind of roundabout when the first uh, real live nativity scene happened. I'm gonna say just a round year figure. I'm gonna say. 800. Well, it's it's definitely far back, but not quite that far back. The okay. first okay. live nativity scene is credited to uh, St. Francis of Assisi. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that there guy. There you go. Uh, in the year 1223. And apparently he uh, wanted to make some kind of a play or pantomime or scene to cultivate worship of Christ rather than the focus of the season on secular materialism. So, So at that point, the nativity scene was associated with Christmas? Uh, it's hard to say, but I think at that, the festivals that were happening around about that time, yep. the, it was kind of very um, kind of secular in its kind of presentation and, mm. and evidently quite materialistic. And maybe it kind of ties into some of the, yeah, the origins well, that we were talking about. Because it's interesting. We obviously, we would rarely see a nativity scene apart from Christmas celebrations, which is quite interesting yeah, yeah, yeah. when Jesus out, our Lord and Savior, and mm. you know this this significant scene is only one time of the year. Like yes, absolutely. Mm. So Francis Saint Francis of Assisi is evidently quite an influential dude, mm. and from there I think people who witnessed his rather elaborate uh, nativity kind of depiction, um, they were inspired to do similar kind of. Wonder if he was inspired by Saint Nicholas? Or maybe, maybe. <laughs> now apparently, um, I've been told in your standard nativity scene. Mm. You've got your, you got your baby Jesus, you got your Mary, you got your Joseph, you got <laughs> like all the things that come along here. with it, yeah. Uh, and you got your wise men or people, yep. however many you choose. Now, apparently, in the traditional nativity scene, they're not supposed to arrive until later on in January in nativity scene. So after Christmas, you don't pack away your nativity scene, you leave your nativity scene out, but when you set it up, you start with your wise people mm. off to the side, a fair distance away, mm. and every day. Mm. You move them closer mm. as they get closer to the baby Jesus on their journey. So maybe that's, that's something it. to consider you for your household nativity scene you this go. year, Ryan. Um, but I digress. Um, so apparently within a hundred years of St. Francis of Assisi's first kind of nativity pantomime, every church in Italy was expected to have a nativity scene. With a uh, yeah, 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 like okay. kind of like one that kind of was um, uh, a play or a pantomime or one that involved statues and kind of more mm. of a kind of a static kind of a scene. Um, and obviously, kind of as as the Italians and the churches kind of uh, did at the time, um, they were 
they could be pretty elaborate affairs with rich, richly robed figurines mm. and kind of intricate landscape settings, which potentially may have um, overstated mm. what the the original the actual scene, scene of yeah. the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, which may have quite been a, in a cave, a messy affair. Yeah, yeah, not not um, not quite as calm and uh, and chill. Well, I mean, who knows? Maybe it was. Maybe they got it right. I don't know. The birth of my children was not like that. <laughs> it was a hot mess. Um, <laughs> Yes. So here's some here's some interesting facts about nativity yeah, yeah. scenes. Yep. Uh, a tradition in England involving involves the baking of a mince pie in the shape of a manger. Oh, which what? would hold the Jesus, the Jesus Christ child until dinner time. They would have this little <laughs> part of the nativity scene was having a little kind of manger pie type scenario. It's got some food involved. Yeah. That's a fun little fact, but apparently Puritans around mm, Christmas time mm. when this was all going down, the Puritans weren't weren't down with Christmas in the 17th century. Mm. And among the things they banned was they banned not just nativity scenes, but the Christmas nativity pie. And apparently they branded it um, idolatry in crust. I, I don't know why they had such a bad buzz against the, uh, the Christmas mince pie. But uh, that's something that we get to enjoy. Well, depending on yeah, what you like. Not a uh, fan. Yeah. I like meat pies, but not the uh, <laughs> not the not the the fake mince pie. Mm. Uh, now the nativity scene continues to be controversial to this day. Uh, in fact, the, have you heard of the organization PETA? Yeah, People for Ethical Treatment of Animals. Now they're not down with the nativity scene uh, because they think that nativity scenes indicate that animals uh, are being treated with lack of proper care and they suffer they're suffering abuse within the nativity scene. Look, we did have a um, live donkey here at Riverview Church a couple of years ago, and it took the liberty to um, oh, I bet. excrete all over yes. the um, yes. the floors. So it was being treated pretty well. Yeah. Oh, man. What a vibe. Never work with animals or children. Um, <laughs> and uh, my last fun fact about the nativity scene is that apparently law enforcement in America is reporting thefts of it's – a, it's a phenomenon. It's called baby Jesus theft. <laughs> theft of baby Jesus is on the rise. And now most public nativity scenes place GPS trackers on baby Jesus. Are you for real? That's awesome. That is that is quite a, a little factor. Taking Jesus into your home. Yeah. Beautiful. What a vibe. Now, I, the thing with the nativity scene, I, I just find it interesting because obviously we have different gospel accounts of the nativity scene. But some of them are uh, uh, in some ways contradictory. Mm. But our often our live form nativity scenes have almost become Almost like an amalgamation of yeah, they all combine of those the accounts, yeah. And I guess what happens again, similar with advertising and with art, we're forced to make creative decisions. So, with the wise men, for example, it doesn't really specify how many there were. It just says they bring three gifts. But for us, it's easy to go. Well, let's have three wise men. It's almost like as we play this out, we start making decisions about yeah. how it looked and how it might have felt and how it might have sounded like. But, it, mm. yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. We should have a nativity scene during the middle of the year somewhere. Yeah, why not? Let's make it just a, a year-round fixture Yeah, you know, to encourage the worship of Christ rather than the secular materialism of our day. There you go. That's all I have on that. I'm sure there's more to be found. Anyone, anyone with uh, fun nativity facts, let us know. <laughs> well, Reese, uh, I thought I'd give a little bit of background a bit of a how did we get here in relation to the Christmas tree. Christmas 
Christmas and, tree, man. Oh, Tannenbaum. Oh, Tannenbaum. <laughs> <laughs> and a little bit of a bonus on top of the Christmas tree is just in relation to mistletoe. We'll get to that in a little bit. Oh, now, yeah. This one's not surprising. And in some ways, you, you've already done a bit of the hard work in, in covering it off. Um, plants and trees remain um, green. They remain green all year. Had kind of special meaning for people in the winter. Now, mm. here in Australia, there is a bit of a craze with having greenery in your home anyway. So mm. this is not all that surprising a tradition and how it happens. So during winter, uh, people would often decorate their homes with pine and with uh, fir trees. In fact, ancient people hung evergreen bows over their doors and windows. So this is kind of like, oh, like just a common yeah, tradition yeah, yeah. in terms of making your mm. home green and light. Um, some believe, some for, you know, like a pagan ritual believe that it would keep away witches or ghosts or evil spirit or illness, but there's always going to be different traditions and mm. reasons for doing this. So in some ways, green trees were synonymous with winter and, and when is the peak of winter? Unless you're in Australia, <laughs> it's, you know, around that Christmas yeah. time, um, or as you mentioned, winter solstice. So this mm. is kind of, um, all kind of connecting together. And part of that winter solstice tradition is obviously the Norse kind of connection mm. um, in Scandinavia and all of that um, is the involvement of greenery mm. in that. But as you kind of explore it a little further, it seems as though Germany accredited with kind of starting the Christmas tree tradition. Yeah. So there was, there, was greenery, there was greenery and pine and all of that, but it wasn't really until... Um, Germany that there was a strong Christmas connection to it. And there's a strong tradition that Martin Luther, the famous reformer in the 16th century, was the first one to add lighted candles to a tree, which to me seems like a fire hazard. That's sounds, <laughs> sounds a bit no smoke, No yeah. smoke detectors around no. at that time. But story has it, and this is quite interesting, story has it, as he was walking towards his home one winter evening, composing a sermon, as you do, Mm. He was awed by the brilliance of the stars twinkling amongst the evergreen trees. And to recapture the scene for his family, he, he placed a tree in the main room and um, put lighted candles and wired those to the, the tree. He thought to himself, I have a business idea. That's right. <laughs> and obviously Martin Luther being a, a pretty um, historical figure at that time, obviously things seemed to catch on. Now, again, it, it's similar to our um, Santa story and other tradition. It seems to spread through cultural adaptation and, and the movement of people throughout the world. So German settlers in Pennsylvania had really strong associations with Christmas tree. And um, mm. by the, the 19th century, um, things begin to move a little more and people start to have it's more common mm. around Christmas to have these trees in your home and begin to decorating them and doing all of those kind of things. So again, similar to the other traditions, it's almost through art and advertising where this kind of blows up more and more and begins mm. getting cemented as tradition. So there was a famous illustration um, in December 1848 um, in the – London news that showed the Qu Queen Victoria and her family around a Christmas tree. Mm. And this kind of became a famous image, which then obviously people see that and go, oh, well, that's a good tradition. Let's start to implement that. So by the, eight late, uh, the late 1800s, retailers begin to realize they could utilize a new Christmas tradition for the sake of sales. And heading into the 20th century, you've got 
um, you know, ornaments arriving from Germany and Christmas trees having a popular rise in the US in particular. So it's a, one of those stories, again, where art and advertising seems to play a mm. huge role in the yeah. um, cementing of tradition. Uh, interestingly, I was having a look. So the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. Oh, yeah, that's hectic. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of one of those really big famous, um, you know, things that you would associate with Christmas trees. That actually began in 1933. So it's not it's not actually that old a, mm. a tradition. So that's, um, you know, after that, the rest is kind of history, I mm. guess. Further cemented by Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. That's, yes. <laughs> that is very true. I'm just looking at that image of Queen Victoria with the mm. the, the Christmas tree. That is, that's quite quite the setup. Yes. Yeah, there's a, there's, there's a lot of toy soldiers underneath it and the thing is ornately decorated. Quite yes. Now, quite it, it, as well, it seems in original German tradition, these trees weren't massive. The Christmas trees were, uh, you know, three foot, four foot. Yeah, uh, right. It seems as though when it moved Much more into, manageable. Yes, exactly. Um, as it moved into more American tradition, I think there was something associated with the idea of having a tree that would touch your, the ceiling of your house. I don't know why. Maybe we just like things that are bigger. Looks My more Christmas opulent. tree is bigger than the neighbor's Christmas yes, tree. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Perhaps. There you go. Christmas trees. Now, Reese. Yes. Mistletoe. Oh, Here, here's chestnut. my theory on this one. And I'll give you maybe actual some background after. Yes. But here's my theory on this. There's just a guy who likes a girl yes. and he is at a Christmas party. Yes. And somehow there's some greenery hanging there. And he figures, you know what? I want to have a smooch with this girl. So he creates his own tradition and says, you know, this thing about mistletoe. If you stand under it, you got to kiss me. And I think the rest is history. Now, there's some truth to that. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> so mistletoe um, was actually an ancient symbol of fertility and virility. So oh. in Greek tradition, if someone stood under it, it was a sign that they were available to the opposite sex. Hmm. So there's there's long traditions of mistletoe being associated with being available, ready to go. <laughs> it's like an ancient dating device. It is. It is the original uh, yeah, online dating system that says wow. yes and yes. Um, so mistletoe's association with you know fertility and um, all of that continue through the Middle Ages. And by the 18th century, it's somehow, and, and r- people don't really know how, but it's become incorporated into Christmas celebrations. Just how it made the jump from this kind of sacred herb mm. to um, a holiday decoration is up for debate, but um, it seems as though this kind of kissing tradition appears to have caught on in England before spreading to the middle classes. So as part of the early custom, this is really strange, men were allowed to steal a kiss from any woman who who was caught standing under mistletoe and refusing that kiss was deemed bad luck. So I don't think my first theory is too far off. It's a bit me too, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, and that's pretty much all we've got on, on mistletoe. It seems like one of those strange I, ones. I have a couple of fun facts. Oh, yeah, please, uh, please. I was watching free-to-air television the other night. Mm-hmm. I'm a connoisseur of free-to-air TV, mm-hmm. uh, much to the uh, chagrin of people that I know, people that I work with. They, they mock me incessantly. Uh, but I was watching a movie called Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, mm. starring Kevin Costner yep. with um, a supporting role from Morgan Freeman. And so Robin Hood's just got back to his his homeland and he's flung himself on the beach and he's reveling in it and he's walking across the, uh, him and his uh, sidekick Azima walking across uh, a meadow. And then Robin says, look, mistletoe. 
Many a maid's lost her resolve to me thanks to this little plant. And Azim, Morgan Freeman, quips back, in my country, we talk to our women. We do not drug them with plants. Oh. I was like, ooh, that's, that's quite, the, uh, quite the comeback there, oh. Morgan Freeman. There you, you go. Know, so the Brits, Robin Hood. It's all in there somewhere. Mm. And I, I correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't the word mistletoe mean dung on a stick? Look, I do not know that, but that would be very interesting. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to get too far and steal your thunder, but no, I was no, like, no, no, no. mistletoe I should have, name. I looked into that. I'm Dung sorry. on a stick. <laughs> there yes. you go. Anyway. Well, lastly, Reese, what have you got? What have I got? What have I got? Okay, I'd like to talk about Boxing Day. Mm. Boxing Day when I was a kid was kind of almost like second Christmas, you know? Yes. It's like, yeah, still hanging out at Nana's, yep. still playing with the skateboard. Yep. yep. Um, and interestingly enough… It's probably no surprise that Boxing Day is a big deal for us because it originated in the UK. Mm. Us being kind of Australia, New Zealand, kind of British colony colonies originally. Um, and was celebrated throughout not just the UK, but um, and but maybe not in name, or maybe not named Boxing Day, but throughout the kind of the rest of Western Europe as mm. a second Christmas Day mm. or like a secondary kind of part to the Christmas Day celebrations. Uh, now, it's been recorded that late Roman citizens and early Christians around about that time would collect boxes of donations and alms for the poor that had been given to them. Oh, wow. And on the day after Christmas, they would distribute them or open those boxes and disperse them to kind of the poor amongst the community. So So is that related to people potentially receiving gifts and then having no need for an old thing that they had? Potentially, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely kind of like a donation kind of – um, you know, alms for the poor type oh. thing. I suppose in many ways, kind of the the easiest um, connection for what we do now is you think of kind of Salvation Army kind of collecting yes. kind yeah, of yeah. You know, Christmas appeals and Easter appeals and stuff like that. Huh. Um, now, also along in in a similar similar vein to that, it's in as early in as the year sixteen sixty three in Britain, mm. Christmas boxes in inverted commas mm. were distributed to and by tradespeople. As thanks for good service throughout the year oh, on okay, Boxing okay. Day, yeah, um, which is not unlike the boxes of chocolate I used to get as a paper boy <laughs> from the people I used to deliver my oh, papers to nice. in the mornings. I'd go around kind of and periodically, you'd uh, nearing Christmas, you'd you'd come back with uh, you'd deliver your papers, but you'd come back with a full little paper bag full not of bad. Uh, roses, chocolates, or something like There's that. There's your bonus for the year, right? Eh? Quite a vibe. Sometimes you get money. Sometimes you get little. Twenty dollar note, not bad. That's, they've already paid for their paper, but you know they're giving <laughs> giving you an extra little uh, thing. Um, and so employers <laughs> employers were also known to do a similar thing for servants or employees. Mm. Be, it was like a kind of a Christmas bonus type thing. So I think that's where the origin of the Christmas bonus comes from. They would, if you were a servant, you'd get to kind of um, take home a gift or a box of kind of food or kind of something that was prepared for you by your employer or your mm. um, the person who was kind of you were. An indentured servant too. Um, but obviously Boxing Day these days um, has kind of evolved, even since when I was a kid. When I was a kid, Boxing Day, like I said, was kind of the day where you hang about and kind of spend more time with family. and Cricket's on in the background. Yeah, totally. But um, I think in the last 10 years, it's really maybe, maybe a little bit more than that. But in the very recent history, it's basically turned into mega shopping day. Yes, um, and I think retail associations basically say it's like the day of the highest revenue of the year. Like every one of our traditions so far, yeah, it, um, get it's monetized. Yeah, I know. And that that might be kind of might be a close thing with Black Friday, especially in the states these yes, days. But yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, Boxing Day sales. You hear kind of 
It, it invariably comes up in conversation. I know with yes. our family. It's my like, oh, wife did you see all loves this? it. Did you see the sale at such and such? It's like, I'm not going, I'm not venturing outside yeah, the house. Um, it's interesting you say some of that because it, it almost sounds like, and we talked earlier about the St. Nicholas tradition, it almost sounds like Boxing Day originally was actually more closely associated with the St. Nicholas tradition. Mm. Of the charitable, the charitable act. Because for us, mm. Christmas is giving gifts to family members who don't really need the thing that we yeah. we have. But the Saint Nicholas tradition was more about those who are needy or yeah. in need, um, and doing something beyond mm. the, the you know your your friends or your family. Yeah. So it's quite interesting that Boxing Day is probably more closely associated with the original St. Nicholas tradition as well. Yeah, and I was always told that, oh, Boxing Day was just the day where everyone used to open their presents. So it was like- Unboxing they'd Day. They'd receive it on Saturday or on, <laughs> sorry, not Saturday, on Christmas Day and they'd un they'd open them on Boxing Day. Like, yeah. why, what are you going to do? Receive a gift and just sit around and look at the wrapping, for, like this wrapped gift for a day? Uh, you could hop on YouTube on Boxing Day. There'd be lots of oh, unboxing man. videos as well. Oh, mate, I bet, I bet. Um, so so obviously Boxing Day these days, it's pretty, it's pretty low-hanging fruit for kind of news yes, outlets. Yes. You know, like you, you watch the news or whatever on Boxing Day and it's just nonstop. Here I am at Morley Galleria. People have been lining up since 5am at this door busting sales galore. Ready at the doors and they're off. Three, two, one. Early risers eager to be first in line for a bargain. If you come in early, there's hardly any crowds, so beating that. I'm just having a look around and just seeing what I can get my hands on. Shoes, makeup, clothes. Others aiming for something a little bigger. Pretty good, actually. It's pretty good sales. Crowds started slow, but grew. Steady groups at Westfield in Parramatta. Thousands filled Pitt Street Mall. A slow news day generally yes. on Christmas. Look, it's, I think it's a sham as well. It's not that cheap. Yeah. <laughs> Save yourself the trouble, guys. Yeah, but as you mentioned, Boxing Day has become a bit of a thing for the sporting world. Mm. And that also seems to trace back to the UK. Now, it's a UK tradition in many sporting um, codes, but particularly in professional like football, with a professional and also kind of amateur yes. football to hold yes. sporting fixtures on Boxing Day. Mm. So that kind of, that goes back a long way. But I think the big one in Australian culture is the Boxing Day test. Yes. So the Boxing Day test, I was just looking into it a little bit today. Um, and apparently the story goes... Um, for a long tradition, there was always a Sheffield Shield match between Victoria and New South Wales played at the MCG over the Christmas period. And we're talking early 20th century type, yes. type scenario. Yep. Now, one of those days was scheduled to be on Boxing Day. They'd take a break for Christmas and they'd, it would be Boxing Day would be in the middle of the play, oh, okay, okay. but not the starting day. Yep, yep. Um, and that was obviously to the, much to the chagrin of the New South Wales players who missed spending Christmas with their families as a result. Mm. Uh, now the the Melbourne Test match of the summer in the early 20th century was usually held over the New Year period, starting on New Year's Day. Yep. Um, but apparently, it was during the 1950-51 uh, Ashes series, um, obviously between Australia and England. The Melbourne Test was played between the 22nd and the 27th of December. Oh. The fourth day's play being on Boxing Day. So that's the first test match. That's yep. where the test match comes into yep. that kind yep. of thing. Uh, but no test matches were played on Boxing Day in Melbourne for about another 20 years after mm. that. So there was there was like a one-off test mm. match, mm. then not much else. Um, fast forward a little bit to 1974-75, getting a little bit closer to present day. Uh, there were six tests in the kind of summer series of the Ashes. And the third test was scheduled to start on, on Boxing Day. Uh, there you go. And so okay. the third third test of that series, 74-75, started on Boxing Day, and that's the start of the tradition. 
and it became firm, further formalised when the Melbourne Cricket Club kind of secured the rights to begin a test annually. So it kind of late 70s was when it kind of all kind of locked mm. in. And so now we have the tradition of of watching uh, watching the cricket on uh, on Boxing Day and long may that continue. Yeah. I suppose it's kind of similar to kind of, you know, kind of um, watching the football kind of around mm. Thanksgiving in the States and stuff like that. Mm. There you go. Yeah. Now, Reese, we thought we would give all of our listeners a little Christmas treat. What's this segment called? Get Fact. <laughs> <laughs> so what we thought we would do is we would each provide you with three fun Christmas mm. facts that will help you this Christmas with your family around the Christmas table as you're opening presents, as you're mm. um, decorating a tree if you haven't already. When you're sat next to your sister's new boyfriend awkwardly at the, yep. at the Christmas we table. We want to equip you with some fun Christmas facts. Yes. Now, Reese, I've got the first one for you. Here we go. Very random. All of the items in the song The 12 Days of Christmas totals 354 gifts. Good grief. Too many gifts, if you ask me. Uh, two turtle doves. <laughs> yeah, Three hundred and fifty-four gifts. That's a very merry. Christmas. I wonder if you like if you tallied the cost of all those gifts. Oh, very pricey in today. Because what do you got? You got you got you got your five maids are milking. That's so you got like five cows. How many hours maids. are they milking for? Yeah, what's their hourly rate? You got <laughs> what else? You got you got like how, something golden rings. Isn't there like yeah, ten that's, lords that's are leaping? Like. So let's say you're in the UK. What's it going to cost to coordinate to get 10 lords to do some leaping? Yeah, it's not on Christmas. It, it doesn't make it into my secret Santa price list this year. <laughs> it sounds like a costly Christmas. Yes, that's right. Uh, oh, that's a good one. What do you got for me, Reese? Okay. What, uh, um, what do you know about Jingle Bells? Do you know anything about Jingle Bells other than the fact it's a song? And that's the noise bells yeah. make? <laughs> uh, it's a Christmas song, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it's not a Christmas song. Jingle Bells was written for Thanksgiving. Oh. Yes. The song was originally written in 1857 by James Lord Pierpont hmm. and published under the title One Horse Open Sleigh. It was supposed to be played during Sunday school class in Sunday school class during Thanksgiving as a way to commemorate the famed Medford sleigh races. So there you go. Not a Christmas song. There you go. Thanksgiving. I wonder, the sleigh bit obviously became synonymous with Santa, but maybe that's only after maybe that. Who knows? Hmm. Maybe that's the origin of that. Maybe before that, Santa just like hooned about go. without a sleigh. Reese, here's a random fun fact for you. Now, it might not um, be as appropriate for us here in Australia, but I'm still mm. going to tell you. If you're really into recycling, you can eat your Christmas tree. Now... Let me what, put like a disclaimer. As a, as a garnish. Yeah, no. So the needle, the pine needles. Now, yeah. if you have a plastic Christmas tree, <laughs> we're going to put the disclaimer that we do not recommend eating yeah, that because yeah. that'll yeah, mess no your insides no, up. No, thank you. But if you if you have a pine tree, apparently the needles provide you with a huge amount of vitamin C. Wow. And you can also eat the pine nuts um, if your tree comes with pine cones. Now, probably not the actual bark and wood itself, but you can actually eat it. Now, it's apparent that some Christmas trees after Christmas get donated for food for zoo animals. Oh, really? Wow. They're quite nutritional. Yeah. I can vouch for the fact that they go up in flames very quickly. <laughs> How can you vouch for that? <laughs> I may have set fire to one. <laughs> and within a matter of seconds, it was like a flaming, 
flaming dangerous thing. Flaming vitamin C. Flaming trees. <laughs> what do you got for me? Okay. Uh, this is for the people who love talking about relationships. Christmas for relationships. It's mm, a bit fraught, mm, it seems. Mm. Apparently, two weeks before Christmas is the most popular time for couples to break up. Two weeks before? Yeah. Better according than one week before. <laughs> a, a, according to data, 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 anal, <laughs> analyzed from Facebook posts and status updates, couples are more likely to end their relationship two weeks before Christmas and also two weeks after Valentine's Day. <laughs> Christmas wow. Day, however, is the least favorite day for breakups. Wow, that is an excellent fact. Mm. You've done very well there. Rich. I suppose you'd probably want to get it out of the way before Christmas Day. You know, you'd be like, "Look, Christmas is coming. It's going to be awkward." Yeah, I would Cut say careful cord. who you share that fact with on Christmas Day. Uh, probably not a good <laughs> intro yeah. for your partner. Yeah. Uh, yeah anyway. Mm, yes. <laughs> now this one's um, an interesting fact, Reese. I did not know this, but um, a grog <gasps> is any drink made with rum. Hence the name for the egg cream nutmeg rum drink, eggnog. Oh. So the the um, obviously we don't do that much in Australia. That's probably a more winter-based drink. Some people do it in Australia. Mm. But eggnog comes from the term grog, which really means any drink made with rum. I did not know that. I'm less of, I'm not so much of an eggnog kind of a guy. No. I'm more of a mulled wine mm. person myself. Yeah, look, if I'm going to have eggs, I'll have them scrambled, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather not drink them. Yes. In fact, I'd, I may I may even have never tasted eggnog. Really? My look, nothing to write home about. I eggy think. drink. Yeah. No. Not not that great. Not not. Finish us off, Reese. What's a, okay. a fun gift fact for those okay. listeners? Here we go. If you are Japanese at Christmas time. What are you having for Christmas dinner? Chances are you're eating KFC. Oh, yeah. Yes. Now, although the percentage of Christian people in Japan is pretty much zero, <laughs> every Christmas, kids and grown-ups head to the closest KFC to enjoy some fried what chicken. What a tradition. Yeah. It's the closest food to turkey you can get in Japan, apparently. And it's all thanks to Mr. a successful KFC advertising campaign oh, well in 1947 titled... Kentucky for Christmas. Mm. First, it was aimed at foreigners. KFC offered a Christmas dinner that contained chicken and wine. Mm. Imagine that. Imagine going down to South Perth KFC and getting some wine. What a vibe. Might try it this Christmas. Yes, yes. And after huge success, KFC started promoting this offer every year until the fast food chain became strongly associated with the holiday season. There you go. What a vibe. It's incredible. I feel like as we've had – so I, I studied advertising. Mm. I did not realize the influence that we – Yeah, so Christmas is a <laughs> – Like Christmas is just an, a marketer's dream. And long may it continue, I reckon. I feel like the magic, you know, like people are finding the magic yeah, in the most true. mundane – who would have thought KFC could become a magical part of Christmas? That's true. I do like my KFC. Well, Reese, Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas to we've, you, uh, We've had such a, a fun time this year recording this podcast and we genuinely do want to just take a moment to wish you all a very Merry Christmas mm. and a happy holidays. Um, we're looking forward to coming back again in the new year. We've got some mm. epic conversations lined up. I think we even have a New Year's kind of podcast that we're looking at releasing as well. New Year's resolutions. Oh, yeah, I like that. Oh. Anyway, thanks so much for joining with us. Merry Christmas, everyone. Yes, Merry Christmas. <laughs>